Winton. Winton. Jazz. <laughs> All right. I'm ready to do this. I'm sure you are sick of listening to Winton's impossibly competent trumpet. So let's make this happen. Okay. Well, this is Jazz Bastard Podcast 90. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. Tonight we're <laughs> going to talk about, uh, I think it's the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Birds of Fire, some weather report. Maynard Ferguson. I mean, we are doing like albums that Wynton Marsalis hated, right? Yes, that's right. We're doing albums Wynton Marsalis hated. What would be like the ultimate <laughs> I hate you album? Probably anything. Can you imagine if Miles had made the album with Jimi Hendrix? That there you would go. be the ultimate Wynton hate album. Yeah, my guess is Dark Magus is probably close enough. It's probably, close enough. Yeah. It's, it's he, in the ballpark. Yeah. It's, that's probably on his. His CD changer in hell. Uh, One wonders what he will make, if anything, of the new Don Cheadle movie. What's that, Miles Ahead or something? Right. So, and what's amazing is that not only is this movie that Don Cheadle's doing about Miles Davis coming out, but there's also a movie about Chet Baker coming out. Uh, I saw that with, uh, oh, no, I mean, I, I mean... I happen to like, uh, what's his name? Is it Ethan Hawke? Is it's it Ethan, Ethan Hawke. I happen yeah. to like him from time to time, but I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, well, and, I'm, I'm nervous. Right. And, and they had like, they, they quizzed him on his five top jazz albums. And one of them was Chet Baker in Paris with this guy that died of a heroin overdose real young, this piano player, Dick Swartick. Swartick. But then there's some odd choices like Nina Simone and whatever, but, you know, fine, whatever. And, and a weird Miles Davis one. It was, it was like really early or something. But I thought, well, OK, you know, he's an actor. and He's got five favorite jazz albums, which means he's heard of five jazz albums. So he's already ahead of the curve. Cool. I think but, he's actually kind of smart. I mean, um, oh, yeah. No, I, I, mean, I initially, I initially kind of used to hate him. And then I've, I've warmed to him over the years. I think he's he's a pretty bright guy. But, but so, some smart people don't like jazz. I mean, it, it's right. been known to happen. But but yeah. So anyway, I I don't know. But I just I can't. It's like what the hell is going on here? What what two jazz biopics about troubled trumpet players at once? Right, aged trumpeters. Well, let's just be thankful that Don Cheadle didn't want to play Baker and uh, Ethan Hawke didn't want to play Miles because that would have been that would have been cool. Let's do a little colorblind thing. Yeah, I, been... I was reading that Don Cheadle, by the way, actually learned the fingerings and plays trumpet. Like he actually learned. To, he's been. This is a project that's been on his plate for a long time, and he is actually playing. What they do is they overdub. I was reading an interview where he and Ambrose Rock and Musare were talking about playing trumpet, and Don Cheadle is actually a serious. He's not a jazz level trumpeter by any stretch, but he he can play and. One of the interesting things that came out in that interview was Ambrose and he were talking about the fact that if you, Ambrose says, if I don't play at least every day, I, I lose my lip. Like, I have to play 
even if it's a terrible day and I'm practicing and nothing's happening, you know, I can't not have contact with my trumpet because it just, it ruins your mouth. It's like, you have to play every day. It's like an addiction. Like you're forced to play the trumpet every day to keep your chops up, which I did not know. I, I don't imagine that's the same for saxophone players. Yeah. Well, that's what uh, Paul Desmond claimed. He never practiced because when he did, he just started playing too fast. So it's not as, mm. it's not as extreme for reed players. I mean, it, it's good to play every day, whoever you are, if you can, but brass is especially uh, devastating. And I, I was talking a, a, an episode or two ago about this live show I saw with Christian Scott and how mm-hmm. we did a 15-minute introduction of the rest of his band members. And some of that, I think, is just because he's a talkative guy. But part of it, too, is if you're a trumpet player and the only wind player in, a, in an ensemble, you need time to rest your chops. You, you need mm-hmm. time to let other people solo or just take a break. So you can keep the blood flowing to your lips, basically. So trumpet players get real clever about how they find ways not to play for a while. And yeah, it's and, a much uh, more. It's worth pointing out as we turn to talk about Winton today that it's in in some ways it's on the mouth. It's the most demanding of the jazz instruments. I mean, it just demands an enormous amount of control and pressure and just muscular ability in a way that the reed instruments just don't. And even trombone players don't have as I, I have the sense that they can coast a little bit more than trumpeters can because they're just always kind of on a high wire. I don't know. Perhaps that's mistaken and trombone players will write in by the millions to say you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think it's tough. It's just that it's not the mouthpiece is bigger. And yeah. I don't think the pressure is as intense for trombone right. players. Right. Any brass player is is using their embouchure in a more intense way, typically than a woodwind player. But I do think I think you're probably right that trumpet players are amongst the most strained. Uh, the, it's the hardest just physically on them. And so you have people who ruin their embouchures or come back too soon and they're bleeding. Or of course Chet Baker, a drug dealer, knocked his teeth in, and so it's extremely difficult for him to be able to come learn to play again. It is. It's physically demanding, and uh, that's why you rarely see, and we're going to encounter a couple examples here, but it's fairly unusual for a trumpet player to lead a quartet. More often, there's another horn on the front line, and part of that is obviously for harmonic possibilities and contrasting textures, but part of it's just for survival. Right. Uh, There are exceptions. Charles Tulliver uh, led one, and we're going to double disc set here that we're going to look at. It's it's Wenton is the only horn, but fairly unusual. Typically, they they want a, a... a sidekick so they can get through those long nights of the bandstand without bleeding all over the place. Yeah. So we are going to do right. Wenton Marcellus recordings on this first episode. We're going to call Wenton, 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 the early years. <laughs> we're doing a second episode. When is that going to happen? A lot longer from now. Uh, it's going to be a while. <laughs> and I don't know if we're going to do Wenton Biggie style and do a couple of his, his extended compositions we'll just have to think about what that would be. i think we have to think about like winton as composer with ellingtonian aspirations as a whole separate thing yeah yeah absolutely because we what we're going to look at tonight some selections i think largely you worked up i contributed to a little bit i, I guess i'm not sure but it, it's winton in the early years winton in quintets and quartets winton playing small group jazz and yes. there are certainly a lot of originals here, but the focus is not really on composition as much as blowing. And especially in the live set, we're going to look at, there's a lot of blowing. Yep. But this is Winton before he becomes a conceptualist, the writer of these extended works, some of which I got to admit I never listened to. I guess I will right. when this comes up. We're going to do at least one to two more Ellington episodes before we get there. Uh, <laughs> maybe in a few more. We just lost. Who is it? We lost a Gatto Barbieri. Yeah. We got to so do Gatto. I know. We'll do, we'll do some Gatto. Got to get a Gatto. Get a Gatto. 
but this is a figure for for us people of our generation. If, if you're into jazz, the formative figure, Lo- love him or hate him, but he yeah, was he's the, he's he was the, the monumental one. figure of our lifetime. Absolutely, is, in the music, he is the he is the giant of our lifetime. There's no question about that. Lo- love him or hate him. And so we'll get into the specifics in a minute, but I guess why don't you let the people know what recordings we're going to talk about? So we're looking at his first outing as a, a leader, uh, and all of these, of course, are in Colombia. So Winton Marsalis, self-titled from 1981. And then I believe we are looking at Black Codes from the Underground from 1985. And we're looking at Standard Time Volume 1, 1987. And I've screwed something up. What is the date for the fourth disc, Live at Blues Alley? I, off the top of my head, I can't find it. Yeah, I'm Googling frantically now, and it's it may be one of those that was recorded on a certain date and released. Oh, it says recorded in 90—let um, me try again. Recorded at Blues Alley in December 86, released 87. Right, okay. And what's important, the reason I picked that is it, it sort of, as, la- as live dates so often do, it crystallizes kind of what he and his quartet are getting up to and also demonstrates just his blinding speed in a live venue, he is, whatever else we want to say about him, he is a monumental technician. And he puts on a great live performance. He can he can blow. He is a good player, whether you like his pronouncements or not. That's why I picked that date. And also, it's a date that he's talked about. He has a blog that he infrequently goes to hmm. and posts comments on. And he has an entry where he talks about that live at Blues Alley two disc set that we're going to talk about today and he talks a little bit about what how they blew and why they were blowing the way they blew on that particular date and what was going on so that's kind of interesting i think too yeah, the blog is called another thing i did that was great and uh... no no it's it's an interesting <laughs> blog because he doesn't sort of like he does it and then he goes away for a while so it's on his website he's got a he naturally he has a website wintonmarsalis.org and there's winton's blog and he's not an everyday blogger and he is not a writer at the level of, say, Mel Dow. He's, he's introspective, but not nearly to that degree. But he has an entry on December 29th, 2015, so not that long ago, where he talks about this particular date, and he talks a little bit about a couple of the cuts. And it's interesting what he has to say. I mean, he doesn't go into every cut. He doesn't talk about them all. He just says, here's what we were doing on no smoking. <laughs> mm, okay. I mean, kind of, so we'll talk about that when we get there. I think it's kind okay. of interesting. And I did listen. I don't know if you had a chance, but I went back and dug up an LP I got as a kid from 1980 when he was playing with Art Blakey. called Went Marsalis. It was released under his name because of the fame that was accruing to him as a young man. But and that was tells really... us something right there, right? I mean, sure, right. You know, he's playing with Art Blakey, who is like the finishing school for jazz musicians, and the disc gets released under Winton's name. Right. It's, it's a bit of a, I don't know if bootleg is quite correct, 
Right. But there's a number of performances out there. I just happened to pick up an LP on the Who's Who's and Jazz label. And I noticed I was looking at an old all-music guide, a physical right. one. And oh, it, right. it named that session and another one on the same label from the same performance or rough time period. But that's since disappeared. And now if you look it up, there are other issues on CD of that session. And I, I assume a couple others that he did with Blakey. And right. All Music at least claims that he's under the influence of Freddie Hubbard at that time. And then I also listened to Herbie Hancock's quartet release, which is another one I had as a kid. And it is basically went in with Miles's old rhythm section, Ron exactly. Carter. Yeah. And Ron gets a lot of solo space in that one. Yes, Her- Herbie Hancock and Tony Williams. And For- playing his repertoire very much. Very much so. And as my sort of extra homework, I listened to our old, we both like him a great deal as a kind of palate cleanser for when you get too much Winton in your system. I listened to a Nicholas Payton disc because Nicholas Payton was sort of uh, brought up under Marsalis's patronage. He's also a New Orleans, New Orleans trumpet player, but different in some ways and a nice change of pace for me because um, the Winton can be exhausting. And so it's nice to listen to someone else who's a little less exhausting. Yeah. And we're focusing really on a narrow sliver of the guy's career and a narrow aspect of it. Probably to me, the most palatable aspect of it. Perhaps we'll talk a little bit about the many, many hats Winton wears at the end. I'll ask you to rate them in importance. Uh, Obviously one just being fashionista, but there's, there's a number of things that he does. I still remember there was a jab at him from, I think the onion where they said his latest album was called ode to an Italian suit, (laughs) which kind of summarizes, you know, when comes up in the, in the eighties and he is very much a figure of the eighties. And there's this weird, thing going on there i mean what i was trying to think is the throne empty at this time and at some level i guess it was in terms of he comes in as a very young man 18 19 years old and kind of becomes the trumpeter and i was trying to think you know who were the candidates who would have been kind of king of the jazz trumpet at that time and there are a couple names that occur to me i mean you, you obviously people are still around like i think dizzy gillespie's still around at that time not every trumpet right. player dies he's, in a horrible car accident past his his uh, but he's way way past his prime you know miles and this is the weirdest thing about Wenton's career early on and i was much more aware of it now than i was as a teenager who really didn't know much about jazz is how it's that all about eve kind of thing where you feel like yes Wenton is kind of stalking the guy and trying to take over his career it's like he would have worn his skin if he could yes. have. Yeah. And what we've got is he's emerging just at the very end of Miles's long hiatus. You know, you were referring to this movie. Yeah. And it's set during the hiatus years between 75 and 80 when Miles was kind of just hanging out in this isolation, snorting coke and betting multiple women and whatever, but not producing any music. He, he's off the scene for five years. And just as he's getting ready to come back, Wenton comes on the scene. He's got his rhythm section. He's playing his repertoire. Yes. And he's playing in a style that is in certain ways related to Miles's style. Yeah. And I was trying to think, well, who else was out there? And I looked up, you know, I thought Woody Shaw. Right. Woody's about 20 years older. Yeah. And but Woody, Woody Shaw's in his prime. He is time. in his absolute prime. And he has a stint on Columbia. He does. And he makes fine recordings. But Woody does not become a superstar. And Woody, in some ways, the idiom he's playing in is kind of Coltrane derived. There's lots of force in his playing and, and the harmonies tend to be very modal. And that's something that Wenton just never touches. I, I don't know that I've ever heard Wenton do a modal piece that's kind of bouncing between a couple chords and has that kind of almost rolling rock undercurrent. He just doesn't do that. 
he goes back to Miles' second great quintet once he's pretty much, you know, out of Blakey's orbit. And and I got to say, the Blakey recording, that may be one of my favorite Wenton recordings. It's just it's good. Yeah, he's hot. It's fresh. It's an idiom that I, I kind of like. Well, and Blakey don't take no mess. I mean, Blakey's right. like, we're four to the floor, hard bop. Let's go. One, two, three, four. There's no fucking around. You there know, is. And, and I, I've used the adjective before of puckish. Yes. And there is no puckishness. There's no pucking around on, on that recording. Nope. And it does start to emerge later. But but yeah, I was thinking, to me, I guess, I think like a Charles Tolliver who never quite had the profile. Right. You never Woody Shaw. It. Freddie Hubbard. Yeah, Freddie's older, but but he's he's one of these technical powerhouses. And in certain ways, there's a certain tendency towards impersonality if you're not careful with, with Freddie. In some ways, I think his funk stuff maybe has a little more verve and soul to it. It's not that his hard bop stuff isn't fantastic. It's just... He's not like a um, Lee Morgan, a Lee right. Morgan with really distinctive, sassy mannerisms and a very idiosyncratic approach to the horn. He's a little more just technical maestro. And of course, Wenton is that to the extreme. And I, I think you know, I think part of it has to do with the fact that both uh, just to talk about Shaw and Hubbard, both of those guys are tremendous players, but they are not what you would call tremendous personalities. They don't forward themselves. They are not given to oracular pronouncements. They don't announce themselves in the way that Winton does. Wint- Winton is, I'm here. He had the temerity to walk on stage with Miles Davis at, what is that, Montreux or whatever. Can you imagine Freddie Hubbard or Woody Shaw ever doing that? There's a kind of putting oneself forward in Winton's career, a kind of brash self-enunciation that really I don't think any very few other players have that I can think of. Certainly not today. That's kind of a throwback to a different time where players were more self-promoting and sort of more outward going. Now there's this kind of respect for tradition and there's thought that you kind of you don't promote yourself in quite those ways. And, and Winton has always been very forthright about his self-promotion it seems to me whereas Shaw and Hubbard are more reticent personalities well and they also you know they've had companies behind them but can't stress enough and I think younger listeners just won't understand because it just doesn't exist anymore certainly in the world of jazz but the promotional push that Wenton gets from Columbia is kind of unimaginable I mean his and I think it was they couldn't do it with just anyone they couldn't do it with Woody Shaw but their muscle behind him, the fact that he could put out two or three recordings a year, and he was also releasing, we're not going to talk about them, I don't know that I'm equipped to describe them, but he released half a dozen classical recordings. I, I am equipped to talk about okay. them, and I, I will say a little bit about them. I mean, that that I think is part of the crossover appeal, right? This is after funk, right? This is after fusion, and this is someone who possesses all the right bona fides, right? He is, uh, uh, as a classical trumpet player, he is phenomenal. He has got amazing technique. His recordings of uh, Haydn's concertos are ridiculous. They're amazing. They're they're standout classical recordings in their own right. I mean, as a technical player, he's awesome, right? So he has all the technical facility, and he's from Nolens, and he's from a great jazz family. So he, he sort of, he, he checks all the boxes, right? And he's he's reasonably good looking and he's very flash, right? I mean, you're never going to catch him in a daishiki. This is a guy who wears tailored suits. In a way, he's as presentable to white middle America as a jazz icon could be, especially in the 80s, right? Right, in the 80s. Just right, exactly. looks great. You know, well, he makes a great album cover. 
Right. Know? He's 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 Reagan-esque in his embrace of material riches. Yeah, there, he's very much. He's a icon of that time. And yeah, he's he is ubiquitous. Yes. As a kid growing up, I was interested in jazz. My dad kindly got me recordings, and I swear for a long stretch of time, he just bought everything that Marcellus issued. I mean, he was the name who was known, just as Brubeck had been in the 50s. Right. He was the brand name that, that somebody who at most had a glancing understanding of what jazz was or interest in it. You, Marcellus was the name. And recording after recording got put out, the same with, to some degree, with his brother. And I was in a used record store the other day, and... Didn't see a single release by him. I really am curious. I, I, I want to ask the next time I'm around to think of it, used record store owners, and to say, do you run across this stock? Whether Winton. <laughs> yeah, you, do, you, do you buy it? And I, I haven't been looking, and, and it may just be that that place happened. Maybe they're sold out. Maybe, you know, who knows? But I, I don't know what, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I'm not sure what his stock is now. And it's in some ways, yeah. there may be I, a backlash, yeah. I've put my entire Winton collection, and I'm not a completist by any stretch. But thanks to the Penguins, I've always kind of looked for the four and five star recordings. And with Winton, I very rarely discovered anything three stars and up is worth listening to. He's just good. You you may take issue with the repertoire. At I times, may indeed. Okay. But you know you can't you can't fault the man's playing. I mean he's just he's just really good. And I've put my entire I must have twenty or twenty five discs of his, and that's only a portion of what he's recorded, obviously. And I've put that all together through used record stores. You know, I've found all of those used. I haven't bought one Winton C D new and I kind of refuse to do so. You can always turn him up, it seems, used. Another thing briefly to say, just, and this is the last time I'll talk about it, but he has not, I think this is to his credit, he's not shied away from classical repertoire. He continues to record in it. And Does he? Because I thought I record. heard that he'd given it up. I guess at no, one point he said are, he was going to stop. Okay, I didn't realize Well, that. there was a backlash early, right? Because one of the backlashes against him early was he's too technical. He has no soul, right? How can a classical player play jazz? How can you do blue notes if you're you know, playing letter-perfect Baroque right. renditions of concerti, right? And so there was a backlash early in his career, and I think that's kind of gone by the wayside. So he still records okay. classical music. I did There's not realize a, that, yeah. Yeah, there, there, he, he's continued to do so, and I believe he's even had some things commissioned for himself as well. Not at the rate that he used to, but he still records um, uh, classical music. He hasn't completely given it up as far as I can tell. And, and, and the rate is amazing, right? I, I referred a couple times to the oh, yeah. set of 10 albums he released in like 1999 right. or 2000. It's just kind of jaw-dropping how much product he put out. His relationship with Columbia runs from 80 to about 2002, 2004, something like that. And since then, he's been independent. But there's a couple decades there where he is one of their flagship artists. And in a way that I don't know there is such a thing now as a major label flagship jazz artist. It just, the labels themselves have lost a lot of power and mind share and, and recorded music in general has lost a lot of status. But during that period, you could not escape him. And I think we're mainly going to talk about the music today, but right. he was this full package of ideological pronouncement and theorizing and... Yep. 
who's the band leader arrives, and the rest of it, yeah. He arrives with Stanley Crouch in his back pocket from the very beginning. And Stanley Crouch is an African-American jazz music critic who neither one of us have much use for. He's very smart. He's a pretty good writer. I find him infuriating and irritating in all kinds of ways. He's also, it should be pointed out, Crouch, I believe, plays drums. He's a, he's, yeah, he, did. he plays the music as well. So and he not, actually was involved with the avant-garde for a while. I mean, he wrote notes right. for like the World Sax Quartet and then kind of jumped ship right. and, and pinned his, his flag to Winton and right. the neoclassicist movement. But he does not come from there. He comes from, right. you know, he was playing with David Murray and, and James Newton, my hero, and the rest of those cats. And exactly. then he kind of left the cause. And, and, and very early, he does the liner notes to Winton's albums, and they're, one is more insufferable than the next. I mean, if you think Mel Dow's self-penned liner notes are irritating, yeah. dive into Crouch once, and you'll, you'll just, he makes me want to throw up in my mouth every time I can't stand him. Which isn't to say that I don't think he's smart. I, I, I take issue with him, but I, you know, I respect him, but I don't like him, if that makes any kind of sense. Well, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, to me, what, what pins it down is that the writing finally seems like a, a kind of performance of braggadocio yes. and, and an attempt to rhetorically browbeat the reader in submitting to his arguments. And it seems often full of shit. You know, he'll yeah. talk about Wenton's low-down, gut-bucket bluesy, and it's just like the last person on earth who can do low-down, gut-bucket bluesy playing is Wenton Marsalis. It's like he's gonna, he thinks the power of his words are going to blind you to the fact that that's just not Wenton's strength. It's, it's not even next door to his strength. Right. But that his sheer rhetorical brilliance will somehow overawe you yeah. into having to accept his view of the world. And it is, it's, a lot of it seems to be in spectacularly bad faith. And so, yeah, I've never liked it much. But we, we don't need to talk about Both Stan of them Crouch. get enormous mileage out of the fact that the man is born in New Orleans. Birthplace of jazz. You know, they trade on the Armstrong connection constantly. Yeah. And I well, just it, don't it, feel it, you know, well, when I listen to the music. it couldn't be further apart. I mean, right. as artists go, Wenton and, and, and Louis Armstrong are matter and antimatter. And I say that having largely enjoyed the music we listen to for this, right. this program and having very very mixed feelings about Wenton, even as a musician, certainly as a raconteur and an ideologue. There's a lot of quality there. He's an amazing player, technically. And certainly when I was going to college, I'd run across people that basically felt that his mistake was not focusing on classical, that really that yeah. was his gift more yeah. than jazz, uh, or that maybe Branford was a more natural jazz player and whatever. I, I think that there's some passages here that, that I, I think have to complicate that that idea or, or really lead you to question him i think he's a gifted improviser yes but there are also aspects to his playing that you know do back it up a bit it's an interesting question as to what where his strengths are we, we're not going to do a lot with the compositions uh, just as a spoiler my my feeling is that's not that's not a strength at least in not in not art. not in a small i, I don't think I, th I think his I think one has to take seriously his pretensions to larger form composition. But yeah, would one say he's composed any classics, things that have sort of entered the, the repertoire of other jazz players, the way that a lot of jazz players compose songs that everyone right, yeah. turns to again and again? I don't know that he has, or if he has, he hasn't done many. He's known more for his playing than his writing in the small format, I would say. Oh, for I sure. And, I think that's fair to say. And so I guess... We, we probably ought to bleed into here to his, his debut album. And, can, I, can I say one thing before? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I was talking to the Whippoorwill. He says you got a corny trill. 
Bob White, what you gonna swing tonight? I was talking to the mockingbird. He says you are the worst he's heard. Bob White, what you gonna swing tonight? Because it relates to Crouch and the issue of whiteness and blackness and, and white guys like us talking about talented black musicians. I read something this week that irritated the fuck out of me and I wanted to mention it here because it just I, I think it's there's it's an interesting question when, you know, white listeners question black performers. And I I read a review by Rick Moody, the novelist Rick Moody, okay. who is an irritating human being in all kinds of ways. And he, he wrote a review of a recent biography of James Brown. Now, why you would ask Rick Moody to do this is beyond me. I mean, I don't know what Rick Moody knows about music or biographies or James Brown, but there you have it. The New York Times book review asked him to write this review, and he spent about a column talking about, well, I always feel nervous when white people talk about black culture, and I'm so glad when a black writer talks about black culture because they have insights that we just don't have. And this by way of introducing his review of mm, okay. this James Brown biography by an African-American, which it's like kill him and leave. Is that, is that the name of it? Kill him and leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which uh, it's a uh, showbiz saying, that, right? Yeah. You, you kill the, well, audience. it's, yeah. it's, it's actually James Brown saying because he, he never wanted to talk to people after his shows. He didn't want to hang out. Like his whole idea was play the gig, get in the limo, go to the hotel. He didn't want to, he was not a hobnobber. He didn't want to hang out. And the biographer, this African-American writer, I haven't read the biography. It, it may be quite good, but he spends a lot of time in his biography talking about how unknowable James Brown was and how very little he confided in other people and how fucking hard it is to write a biography about the man because he just didn't want to be known. He, right, didn't, right, yeah. he, he didn't connect to people. And so kill him and leave really kind of was his motto, right? But I was incensed when I read this bullshit by Moody, basically disqualifying anyone who's not the same race as a performer from being able to talk intelligibly about the music or suggesting that by virtue of one's race, if you have the same race as a performer, you automatically have insights the rest of us don't have. I mean, it was like a poster child for, for white liberal guilt and it really infuriated me and it made me think, you know, here we are, we're going to spend some time talking about Wynton Marsalis this week and we're two uh, pretty obviously white guys from the Midwest and Maybe one of the things, one of the nexi, one of the nexuses people should talk about when they refer to the difference between the reviewer and the reviewed is class and money. Because Winton sure as fuck has a lot more than we do. Maybe, you know, no one who's not uh, born middle class and with the advantages that he has should be able to write about his music by Rick Moody's qualifications. Well, it just in his struck defense, me as infuriating, yeah. you know. I don't think anyone should critique Tilda Swinton's performances unless they're incapable of getting a tan and right. cannot be identified as to gender. Well, whatever. I, look, I think the main thing to do is just, as I think we constantly are, to a degree that I find surprising. I don't know that when we started this project all those years ago, I realized how often we talk about race, but of course it comes up. Of course. And I go and back to my experiences teaching on the south side of Chicago at Olive Harvey College when some kid said, why do you always wear plaid shirts? And I'm like, they're of my people. Because, you know, it's an all black, <laughs> all black class. And I'm like, I am. I, they were really amazed also that I watched in living color. It's like white people's TVs get that show too. But, but you know, it's like, I'm not <laughs> going to pretend I'm some, I, I'm not a hip urban black person. I'm a square white person from the Midwest and we can relate as human beings. We don't have to be the same to 
exchange valuable information or insights with each other or to connect on some level, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm something I'm not to try to reach you because I feel like that's the last way on earth I'm ever going to reach you. I'm not going to try to mirror you in some kind of crude aping of your cultural markers, just as I don't expect you to come dressed in plaid and listening to, I don't know, (laughs) you know, some Merle Haggard, Merle Haggard, or yeah, a Leonard Cohen or whatever, you know, whatever. And right. not that you can't, if you want to either. I mean, it's just, it's just cr- crazy. And and that is, of course, our takes have, are, are limited by and, and conditioned by the fact that we are of a certain race, of a certain class, of a certain age, of a certain geographical locale, of a certain politics, you know, take it all with a grain, right? If, if you don't vibe to it, but at some level, if you know who the speaker is and you know, I do agree with that part of them, but don't agree with this. They can still be useful. They may know from my complaints about Went that Went will be their favorite artist ever or whatever. Exactly. But that's just bullshit. I mean, what, what are you going to do? You can't. I just I, I was so infuriated. When, and it just made me think about our podcast this week. And I was thinking, well, thanks, Rick Moody. I guess we're not allowed to talk about this because we're not middle class African-Americans raised in New Orleans. And only middle class African-Americans raised in New Orleans will have the kind of revelatory insights right. into this music. As long as you have multiple siblings, all of whom have varying degrees of musical talent, too. You've got to have at least 10 to 15. Yeah, yeah well, the Marsalis family is amazing. It's an amazing institution. We've joked about that before. But yeah, whatever. Yeah. Of course, if you feel uncomfortable by this idea, turn it off, whatever. I mean, of course, what are we going to say? I can't say that I am, I don't have a single pair of Gucci shoes or whatever. It just, you know, yeah, (laughs) my watch does not cost as much as every house in Crawfordsville. What are you going to do? You know, it's, we are of different backgrounds, but you do bring up one point and really, to be honest, I'm kind of hoping that mostly we focus at least today on the music because sure. it was fascinating with enough distance separating me from this experience. And largely my experience was as a very young person who did not know much miles at all. Right. I told you the story about man with the horn. God help me being the first miles album I got probably the worst of the couple hundred he made. Certainly didn't know the second quintet stuff was not widely versed in any aspect of jazz. And the very air that you breathed at that era was, was, full of Winton. And so listening to that stuff, I didn't have a lot of metrics to judge it by. It was just what it was. And then I think a lot of people who got into the music kind of got exhausted, got Winton fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, he released more product in, in 10 years than most musicians do in a lifetime. It got more promotional push than most musicians get in a lifetime. And some of it, frankly, wasn't that great. Soul Gestures and Southern Blue. I've got two of those three records, and I, I challenge myself to remember a fucking minute from any of them. I mean, they're just, they're not they are not incompetent, but they're very dull records. It just after a point, you just could not, you just produce so much that right. a certain amount of it. And, of course, the ideological pronouncements and the debates and the judging and all that stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot of wit and fatigue. And so coming back 30 years later, it was kind of neat to focus on the music. But at the time, and of course, from then on, I mean, there was a resentment about you, you look at a figure like Woody Shaw, who'd done an apprenticeship, was a fantastic player, I think is a far better composer yeah. than, than Wenton Marsalis. I mean, he has composed several songs that absolutely stick in my head that I feel like should be if they are not jazz standards and has a more, I think, in certain ways, I, I, maybe that's not fair. I mean, Wenton's a very distinctive player, but. You know, he's got a very distinctive approach to trumpet. Woody never knew the kind of adulation and, and promotion that Winton got. So it, it was a little hard to take for a while for us. But coming back to it, it's kind of neat to hear. Yeah. Hear the music as music. But at the time, and, and really 
permanently. It's hard to separate it from... He's like the jazz musician that Christian Bale would have listened to if he wasn't listening to Huey Lewis in the news, <laughs> chopping up people, right? You know, I mean, he was kind psycho. of. Yeah. That's not fair because Wenton is a fabulously talented musician. Huey Lewis is not. But but you know, it, it there was a certain '80s, I don't know, conservative materialistic thing going on, and Wenton was an extraordinarily talented avatar of that in the jazz world. And there's kind of revulsion against that and to some degree, even though he's a really talented musician. So enough of that. Are we ready to, to plunge into Let's this plunge. guy's his, his debut? And again, self-titled 1982. <laughs> Remember, by the time this comes out, he has already, as I said, released this recording with Herbie Hancock. It was under Herbie's name, where he, I think he does, I Fall in Love Too Easily, which was like one yeah. of the signature tunes that Miles held on to into the electric era. He does Round Midnight, for God's sakes, which is the number that Miles makes his name on. Right. He does a couple tunes from the great second quintet. So he really is, it, it is I don't, has there ever been another figure who just came forward and, and basically said, there's this guy's career. I'm going to redo it better, technically at least, as a 20-year-old, and just kind of take his stuff, his toys. And I'm going to take his band. I'm going to take his repertoire, and I, I'm going to just take it over. There's something to be said for that. I mean, because yeah. that really, the first disc, half the disc is recorded with, with Miles' rhythm section and half with his own, right? And, yeah. and these are people who he continues to play with, right? Half of it is Tony Williams, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, and the other half is Jeff Tane Watts. Why I always want to know about what Tane stands for. And Kenny Short Kirkland. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. For Tane. Kenny Kirkland. And then a couple of different bassists. But Kirkland and Tane Watts are two players who appear on numerous Marsalis recordings, right? And so, you know, there you have it, right? Right on that first album, right? He's gonna kind of slip into Miles' skin and then continue to play in that in that idiom with his own guys. And he I is RJ, kind of like right. Yeah, RJ. I, I kind of like this album and it actually has a couple of standout numbers as far as I'm concerned. I actually really like and find almost moving his playing on Who Can I Turn To When Nobody Needs Me kind of slower ballad kind of number. And uh, that that to me is the most feeling song on that album. And feeling is not necessarily something you associate with Marsalis. The sense that he drips emotion. He is not the Bill Evans of the trumpet. No. He is not aching with emotion when he plays. At least it doesn't sound like it. Um, what he's aching with is monumental technique. And the, the technique that I like the most on this and on the later albums the thing that I like the most is I, I don't think I've ever heard. I can't think. Well, I'm just going to say it. I think he's the best trumpet player with the mute ever. Thank you. 
I don't think anybody plays with the mute with the speed and the articulation and the power that he does. When he puts the Harmon mute on, he fucking kills it. So many players, it sounds muddy. They lose speed. They lose articulation, it feels like. And he doesn't. His his muted playing to me is, is a highlight every time he does it. I never get tired of hearing him with the mute in. And he plays with the same speed and the same crisp articulation, it's it's kind of a feat of strength. You just, it's amazing. It's kind of jaw dropping to listen to him play muted. And of course, that's another ex- Miles motif. And it's right? the exact use, opposite yeah. of Miles. You know, when Miles plays with the muted, he smears the notes. He doesn't articulate. He he rarely plays, especially later in his career. Doesn't play with great speed. It's more about colors and moods and marsalis is like i can do this and i can hear all the notes at the same time in a sense because he is looking at and to some degree i guess the marsalis brothers are considered part of the renaissance and the reappreciation the reevaluation of miles second great quintet because yeah. I, at the time when we talked about his quintets you know, we mentioned the fact that these records did not particularly sell mm-hmm. and they were not particularly all that well received and they are kind of oblique recordings. I, I love them to death, but they do take a while to warm to. They are not emotionally transparent, particularly. They're very challenging. Uh, most of the writing is Wayne Shorter's. And I think to some degree, the writing you get from Marcellus for these small groups in the 80s is kind of his version of Wayne without quite the last step of inspiration or brilliance. He's trying to write those kinds of songs. It's just he's not as good at it as Shorter, who is one of a handful of the great jazz composers and i will say that when you listen to marsalis my feeling about uh, miles's great second quintet is that it is an amazing ensemble but it is not miles at his best no no miles tends to do a lot of these chromatic Mm -hmm. figures that don't really go anywhere just kind of sliding into these very oblique harmonies that 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 shorter's putting together exactly he's a counterpuncher with shorter he relies on shorter to create the magic that he creates and you yeah, know, he's a counterpuncher throughout. And the, I just don't the, feel like yeah, you get you get the great texture and emotion from him, whereas solos on some of the prestige years, some of the earlier yeah. Columbia stuff are just beautiful. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. most of the solos in kind of blue. It's like they're just masterpieces of melody. You just right. they're just beautiful statements. I don't feel like he can generate those very well with the quintet, the second quintet. And right. and Wenton is really better equipped in that idiom to play interesting trumpet lines than Miles mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Now he's got he's got more technical ability well, probably just, than Miles ever had. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. But but he also I just feel like along with his technique, he's got the harmonic reach and the confidence to put together lines that are just more interesting trumpet lines and improvisations, period. Just in terms of their content, mm-hmm. there's less of this kind of chromatic fiddle fucking around that, that it's not the only thing Miles does with those right. groups, but it, it, it is a crutch that I feel like he relies on a bit. And you wouldn't say that Winton, by contrast, though, he's not a linear soloist by any no, stretch, no. right? No, no, And, and not. he's not a great, you know, he, at the same time, he's never going to have the emotional gravitas or nakedness that, that, that Miles has. He doesn't have that final gift, I think, of being able to just grab you by your heartstrings right. or in later years by your balls when he's playing with electric groups and just kind of electrically reach you I don't, I don't know that he's quite got that talent and i don't know that he's quite as a band leader it, it will we'll talk about that we may not that may have to wait more for Wenton's middle years or Wenton big boy stuff or whatever but he's not quite the genius that, that miles is at finding talent he finds really really good players that can play in his idiom but 
not necessarily players who go on to really interesting careers on their own. He's not. Nor, nor does he find players, I would argue, who challenge him. Yeah, but that's the way think... of putting it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When... whereas Miles is out for people to like fuck him up. And he, and he is, and he really, with the second great quintet, arguably, he almost overdoes it. I mean, he's almost right. overwhelmed. Right. Uh, and, of course, he's not in great health then. There's, there's a number of issues going on, and I'm not trying to denigrate. I mean, there's some amazing playing. Of course, I love I love those recordings. I like them more, ultimately, they're closer to my heart than Wenton's. But in terms of the problem, I, I can imagine him listening to those and thinking, you know what I could add to this? I could add a really, really technically solid mm-hmm. trumpet line that, that I could actually do more. There's room for improvement. Mm-hmm. In this trumpet soloing, maybe not in the rhythm section, not in the composition for sure, <laughs> and not particularly in in the saxophone chair. Uh, boy, one thing that strikes me about Wynton Marsalis is, man, Branford is just fucking up Wayne Shorter's ass. I mean, it's just it's just Wayne Shorter. I mean, he's just doing Shorter shit. He doesn't sound like that later, but the tone right. and the lines, it's yeah, just. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as a kid, I had no idea that right. he was doing this. I didn't know Wayne's music, but yeah, you listen to it now, and whereas Wynton is finding his wentiness already and he's maybe playing in miles's idiom but he's so technically advanced that it sounds different branford is just kind of doing <laughs> kind of right. doing wayne it's it's pretty much wayne so that's a little odd and, and the whole project's a little odd as i said in this whole i'm going to take your things and play with them kind of feel yeah. but as, you know as, as a kind of programming gesture it's interesting though right it's uh, both ballsy and modest at the same time right i mean this first leader date he's going to work with miles rhythm section but then he's only on half the date and another half of the date he's going to work with his rhythm section it's like it's like i'm going to work with i'm going to work with the teachers and then i'm going to take the training wheels off and and see if my guys and i can do this you and know? absolutely and if you listen to it in juxtaposition with quartet which comes out the previous year it is very much like a progression because there it's all with, with the rhythm section of Miles and mostly repertoire that Miles either popularized or was generated by that group. And so he's very much, he's just playing Miles at that point. And then here, yeah, you've got kind of a transition where there's some original compositions. Half the time it's his own rhythm section. And it's like he's slowly kind of leaving the pod and, mm-hmm. and coming out on his own. But again, I can't stress enough, and not that it really matters to anyone now, but as a kid at that era, without that context, it was just Wenton. And, and, right. and it's worth pointing out that at some level, though he brings this acoustic jazz back and he brings this idea of neoconservatism, they do begin with a very difficult, oblique period of acoustic jazz. It's kind of its most... Yeah. It, it is obviously not Ornette Coleman. It's not free jazz. It's not atonal. But in the tonal world, it's and in some ways, I think I feel like in some ways it's harder to get or grok second great quintet stuff and Wayne Shorter's compositions than it is modal players like Tolliver or Shaw. I mean, they, in some ways, I just feel like those rhythms and and harmonies are a lot easier to kind of just get for someone. They're a little bit closer to rock. And so yeah. he is picking an idiom that is both kind of obscure at the time and fairly challenging. Now, he's going to move away from that as time goes by, but you know, he starts off with, if he's going to pick a difficult role model, one, there is this idea of room for improvement. It's been neglected. Mm-hmm. And two, it is, it's challenging. There's, there's no question. This is jazz. This is, he's not trying to play pop music. He is playing very hardcore jazz. Now, whether he's got the right idea about how you go about doing that or whether there's some downside to what he was doing. Sure. But it's, it's the real thing. Is there a, is there a standout cut for you on this first album? One that you go, I really like what he's doing here. Well, I guess one thing that struck me is hesitation 
mm-hmm. I feel like is a second great quintet song, but I don't think it is. Yes. It wants to be. It wants Man, to be a it's shorter so composition. Close. I mean, it yeah, really yeah. is. There are moments there where listening to that, and you know, Father Time, I think is a strong opener. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing to remark that I notice much more as a grouchy middle-aged man is that you know these are these recording strip money. They sound good. Oh yeah. They are just very pleasing. Columbia threw product. everything at this. They really yeah, did. Yeah. And, and of course, it is. This is one marker these albums establish is the demise of the direct feed base that we hate so much from the seventies. You know, it's gone now. And that was a, I believe a crusade of the Marsalis brothers among others. And God bless them for that. It, absolutely. If nothing else they were right about, they were God right. Bless about them. God bless them for killing the direct feedback. Job. But, but these are good sounding records. And that's one thing I noticed as I was hopping around on my headphones the last couple of weeks is that every one of these, including the live date, which is excellently done, you know, are just pleasures to listen to. Uh, on a sonic, on a sensual level. Not, you know, as I thought about it, I don't know that Wenton has my all-time favorite tone of a trumpet hmm. player. He's he's, uh, he's a little harsh. He's not, well, a, he's not a caresser of notes like, say, Chet Baker. He's brassy. He's... I don't know if thin is the right word, but it, it it's, it's very controlled. It's kind of tight. It's in the mouthpiece. And for me, the player that always, I think people don't talk about nearly enough in relation to him, and I think I have before, is Clark Terry. I mean, to me, mm. Clark Terry is his real progenitor because there's that same sense of, one, Clark Terry is really fucking good. I mean, people yes. forget what a good trumpet player he is technically. He's amazing. He uses some of those same half-valve techniques and smears, and there's this sense of comic, there's a sort of comic sense to him. Yeah, And Wenton has, the, the other thing that I really notice is a couple of these, there'll be a tossed off phrase that is almost circus-like or a tag at the end that kind of deflates the emotional intensity. And that's one thing that Miles Davis, I mean, think of a funny Miles Davis right. recording. Keep right. thinking, it'll occur to you eventually, <laughs> and eventually you're going to come up with, you're under arrest, where he's monologuing about, motherfucker, pull me over to my Ferrari. You know? And that is funny. I mean, it's not that he had no sense of humor, but as a musician, He's deadly fucking serious. It's, it's never funny, right? It's it's agonized or intense or whatever, but he's not a joker. Winton jokes a lot. He really is. I mean, that's one thing that's there from day one. And I think with Terry and Marsalis, it can be a little hard to find the final emotional center. They're players that amaze you and amuse you, but don't always touch you. So I, to me, anyway, that's the key. And, and something in their tones. I mean, he's not... He's not a shockingly, amazingly full-bodied, rich tone with a lot of overtones. It's, it's certainly not, he doesn't have that same kind of grab-your-gut your tone that, that Miles can generate. But it's not, the, again, it's not a technical problem in the sense that he can't play. Obviously, he's an amazing player. He's probably the greatest trumpet player ever lived at some level. Fine record overall. I mean, it is transitional. He's coming out. He's, he's a little butterfly wings are peeking out. And I don't know, probably not the one I'd, I'd recommend people start with, but a hell of a lot of us did, right? A lot a lot of people growing up in that era, if they were into jazz and they had enough money or their parents had enough money to get them records, had, had this record in their collection at one point or another. All right, so who's next? What do we do next? Uh, Black Codes, I think, whether or not chronologically it's next, it's really what we should go to next.
because I don't know how you feel about this album, but to me, if he was announcing on the self-titled debut, here's, I'm going to try on this Miles Davis coat on this album, which is released in 85. It's all original compositions except for the chambers of Tain by Kirkland. Um, and this one, it's like he's saying, I can do the miles. I can do this. This sounds second quintenti to me completely. This sounds almost like an homage. And Brantford is doing Wayne. Tane is doing his best to do Tony. Kirkland is doing his best Herbie Hancock. I mean, everyone is on their best behavior trying to sound like the second great quintet. I don't know if that's how it sounds to you, but this sounds even more in that Miles bag than the debut album. Yeah, and... For a lot of people, this and maybe J-Mood, which comes out soon after as a quartet. This is after he and Branford break up over whether or not it's okay to be with Sting. Right. And I, I got to admit, I'm with Wenton on this. You should never be with Sting. Because uh, <laughs> Branford is the more, of the two of them, the more adventuresome player in terms he's of... A he's a sunnier personality. He is, and he crosses he's... boundaries. He's got Buck Shock, Shot LaFonk or whatever, right. where he's doing more electric stuff. He briefly hosts... Uh, or he's a musical director on, I think, The Tonight Show. I think that's right. Yeah. But apparently he cannot disguise his loathing for Jay Leno <laughs> and eventually has to leave. He just can't stand it anymore. But he is a more, and he plays with Sting, and he, he does these things. He violates the code of neoclassicism. But this album is, and I think J-Mood are considered, and I've always got a soft spot for J-Mood, which is mm-hmm. also very much in this mode. Two of his just most complete, accomplished, small group recordings a lot of people consider them as best. I, I do know that there is a audiophile LP reissue of this album and really nothing else. I mean, this is the one that some little record company decided was worth digging out of the vault and, and taking another shot at and, and making a fancy version of. So it's been canonized to some degree, right? It, right. it is the one that a, a lot of listeners now looking back 20 or 30 years trying to pick out. And again, with Marsalis, there's such a flood of product. Right. That it's a bit overwhelming. You know, you, what, what it's were a little the hard to ones? find. Yeah, right. Yeah. So which, which ones are we going to pick out as, as the, the top of the heap? And a lot of people put it up here. So, yeah, I absolutely. I mean, of course, yeah, there are a lot of echoes of the quintet, though you get a glimpse of Marsalis to come in that final number. Yes. Much I, later. <laughs> oh, no, 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 the, the blues, the, the blues, kind of sorry. a bonus mystery track where he's right, playing right. a duet with, I think, Ron Carter on bass. Yes. And there again, it's interesting because he goes through it and it's all the sustained blues improvisation. And then at the very end, this cute little tag. There's the Wenton peeking through. He just can't keep the puck down. He, he's got that little sassy tag on the end of it that kind of deflates the whole thing at some level. But it's just, he, it's Wenton being Wenton. And of course, it's looking forward to the more traditional pass he's going to take. But yeah, most of the album is very intense. There's some thunderous drumming on it. I think the, the songs are as memorable as his stuff gets. I mean, again, they're not Wayne level. 
and the playing's all at a very good level. I, I was listening to this wandering around looking at our hospital, which is undergoing reconstruction as I was taking a walk and you know, enjoying it again. It's, it's sonically pleasing. Even as a kid, I kind of felt like that was one of the special ones that it kind of stuck with me. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, how you feel in terms of liking it, but I, I always kind of had a warm spot for it. Uh, of the ones we listened to this week, I do like it. it. To me, now it sounds incredibly derivative. And, you know, it's it's like the second quintet recorded a hell of a lot, both in studio and we have a lot of live stuff by them. I don't really need another version of it. I mean, I like this. There's nothing wrong with it, but I, I just as soon listen to the second quintet. Right, yeah. Um, it's a little hard to beat the originals. Except so, you... Except you get a Miles who can really play. <laughs> right. It's You get a Miles with chops that Miles never had. Yeah, it's it's a, a lot of people will make this their first stop. I'm not sure I would. Um, okay. I'm going to plump for something else in a minute, but uh, I can see why this is held in great regard. Similarly with uh, J-Mood, I can see why these two together kind of form a set and why people have a great deal of affection for these two. I have less, only because it feels very derivative to me. And th- that sounds much more dismissive than I mean it to be. I mean, it's a it's a beautifully played and a beautifully recorded album, right? It's just not terribly original, it feels to me. Right. So, yeah. and, and of course, again, what he's aping was not well known. In other words, that... Right. At the time, it was... Yeah, that music was not so canonized. And, you know, when we were doing the second quintet stuff, you talked about the fact it was a little hard to... To penetrate it a little hard yes. to get these songs in your ears. I mean, it's kind of inaccessible to, music. Yeah, you, you just have to keep listening to them. After a certain while, at a certain point, you, you do grok it. You know, it sort of clicks, but it takes a while. It is. It, it is a little off-putting and forbidding music, and I, I do think, in certain ways, that as we talked about, that that maybe they were a little too laser focused on a couple of aspects of music, especially in the studio stuff, more so than in the live. But yeah, it's. For, again, young people, and I, I'd be fascinated to know what, of course, a lot of musicians has felt resentment because, again, they put the dues in for years, and then suddenly this kid comes up, and he is, I think most people acknowledge, you know, spectacularly talented, but they're not always sure he's saying something, as it were, and he's getting all these accolades and all this push from the record company, and it just, it doesn't seem really fair, and of course it never is in music. But as a kid, right, this is cutting-edge yeah. jazz, and you don't necessarily compare it to anything else because there might not be anything to compare it to. Or you've only heard, you know, a couple dozen records. And so you're not necessarily saying, oh, you know, I can see this is this is clearly somebody who listened a few too many times to Nefertiti and to right. ESP, you know. Right. But, yeah, that was, again, for whatever reason, I, I, I do find it interesting that this is the one that somebody decided, rightly or wrongly, there might be a demand for a fancy version of. Of his various recordings. That's the one they picked. And, of course, it's fantastic sounding. So Here we go. Oh, uh, well, and just just real quick, I just want to put a plug in, and I'm still going to try to feel about it, but for me, J-Mood, I guess, is one album where I do feel like he does sustain a mood. Okay. Um, and there's a little more emotional heft there than some, and a lot of continuity and focus. And so I've kind of liked that record. But, again, is it? Miles removed, haha, from his models. Uh, 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 no, no, it's not. Anyway, now so. let's dive into Miles the uh, Miles Winton the controversialist. You ready? Okay. So I've got my britches on. Talking about yeah, bring your big boy pants for this is Standard Time Volume One. Mm-hmm. 
God. Everything about this album announces itself as part of a program, as he's got his professor hat on. I mean, everything about this, from the seriousness of the man in the tuxedo on the cover looking at you like, okay, are you, do you have your notebook out? Are you ready? Are you, ta- are you ready? What uh, do you think of this watch? It's very expensive. This, <laughs> what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, so, and professorial is the word I want to use here. The name of the album is Marsalis Standard Time Volume 1. Right. It's announced as Volume 1. And they the weren't first. fucking around. There's a lot of volumes of they, Standard Time. I think we're on Volume 6 now. He's up to yeah. Volume 6 or whatever, right? But so here we go, and we have an album of 12 cuts, 10 that are standards, and two originals. Make of that what you will. But here we have Miles mining the tra- uh, Miles, I keep saying that. Here we have Winton mining the tradition. Freudian slip there? Marsalis as anthologist, really. Jazz anthologist. I think the musicianship goes down a little bit. I feel like Marcus Roberts is a little more in an unoriginal traditionalist bag here as piano player than Kirkland, who I actually think is a little more adventuresome. Mm, um, okay. I think you're trading down when you go to Robert Hurst uh, as a bassist from Charnett Moffat. They're both really talented. I just think, you know, the players are much more in a traditional bag here. And we're not going to get terribly adventuresome renditions of these standard numbers. For me, the most amazing thing on this album is Winton's technique. He tears Cherokee up. It's an amazing performance of that song. And they take it at a blistering pace. Place it with the mute in. I mean, it's just fiendish. I would have yeah. liked to hear him play with Parker. You, you can imagine yeah. what that would have bent. Well, perhaps uh, not. But I mean, yeah. in terms of technical facility, the two right. guys could have been on the stand together. He is. Um, that's and of course this is where it gets tricky because Parker's lines on that chord progression. I don't know if he ever officially recorded Cherokee, but some of his most famous improvisations are based on the chord structure are also really indelible, and they also have this incredible nervous charge. I mean, they can almost upset you. And Wentons are amazingly fleet. Yes. But don't seem to have the same kind of profound impact. You know, it's like your jaw's on the floor because of just his sheer articulation and speed, but nothing seems to be at stake in the way Parker, even through the bad recording and everything else, and, you know, Coco or whatever... It's, it's like one's a revolution and one is just an amazing display. Right. And which, of and, course, and that's a fair assessment of this album. It's a display. It is a beautiful museum piece. It is a quartet playing standard songs. They're not reinventing them. These are loving treatments of these songs. Sometimes the, the treatments have great technical facility and that all comes from Winton's end of the date. But I don't feel like anything is at stake here. This is a museum piece where we are being treated to a kind of a display case. Here is jazz. 
Right? Y- yeah, Pay yeah. attention. Because I, I was wondering, as, as we put this program together, and it had been many years since I listened intently, I the, the piece we're coming up to, I actually went out and found and bought because I remembered how much I liked it and still like it. But yeah. for the most part, I, I was not listening to early Winton, period. And largely, I enjoyed it. you know. And I think to some degree, the strength of what he's up to had its own charms, and I was able to kind of be both aware of and not super concerned with the fact that he's aping the second great quint blah, blah, blah. But this album is kind of annoying. Yeah, yes. it is, it's the one where it gets a little cute. Mm-hmm. It gets a little overcooked. The arrangements are a little too full of themselves. And yet the effect is, is the emotional impact is, is, is muted or absent. It is, yeah, as you said. And of course, it's so weird. I, I read somewhere, well, people weren't sure if you could cut the standard repertoire. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, no one would have had a question, having listened to his first albums, can Wynton Marsalis play Autumn Leaves? Right. No one. I mean, everybody could. Of course he could. The question is, can he do it interestingly? Is there a reason for him to do it? I'm not sure this album answers that question. I, I really don't know. If that... you're not going to have an emotional investment in the song, why are you doing it? Right, and you feel like this is more a staking, it's more imperialist, I'm taking over this repertoire to show you I can dominate it, rather than I'm expressing myself by playing it. These songs, for the most part, they've been warhorses for decades. It's not like he's rediscovering these. Johnny Griffin was no. playing on them, at least in the 70s, or whoever, you know, they're they're out there, they've been done again and again, and so he's really not a creative enough arranger, or at least this group is not, to, to invent them in a way that seems fresh or engaging and he just doesn't seem and this is what makes me smile if i hear phil woods who's and got his own annoyances for me god knows playing stevie wonder it's like it's the 1970s phil heard him on the radio phil wants to take a shot at it that seems to me maybe not the makings of great art but a kind of healthy organic thing he wants to jazz up what he's hearing this is going to the museum. It is yeah. it's like he's cut off and cast into the outer darkness anything that happened in the last 15 years of jazz or 15 years of popular culture, and he's going to go back and tell you what the canon is. And I don't really need a 22-year-old or whatever he is telling me what the canon is. And it's, yeah. like I said, that cover drives me crazy. It's, it's you know, I mean, Winton's a good-looking man, but there he is in his tuxedo looking at you with this look of expectation like, Get your notebook out. Get ready to take notes. It's very professorial. It's confrontational almost. Well, you know, there is, like... and there is this thing, and of course, it runs through Crouch's writing. And I know Crouch. This may be a white thing we're having a problem with, but yeah. one thing that did drive me crazy about Marsalis at the time is this self-mythologizing that Crouch is doing for all for him mainly and, and the groups, and then the, they seem to be mythologizing themselves, writing songs about each other. Mm. And and coming up with nicknames, and I'm like, if you're 23, I don't really care what nickname you've given each other. You earn a nickname, right? Eddie, I don't know why they call them Eddie Lockjaw Davis, but there's a reason that has more interest than his other 19-year-old friend decided that'd be a cool thing to call him, and then to tell everybody, by the way, we call him Lockjaw. I don't give a fuck. You know, I'm going to give you a nickname, or, or the culture's going to give you a nickname, or you're going to earn it at 20 years of paying your dues. I don't want to hear you mythologizing yourself and your your little buddies. It's, it's kind of a swagger that's not earned. Yeah. And as good a players, and they were great players, you felt like at some level there was a kind of coercion about it or, I don't know, rich kids at the school lording it over you about it or something. It just didn't seem healthy. It didn't seem organic. It just seemed browbeating. And yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the cover struck me quite as strongly as it did you, but there is a sense of not only can I play trumpet better than you, but my coat costs more than your car. 
And there is a kind of 80s, Again, what what is the name of of this character? The Christian Bale movies about that was based on this novel. Patrick, Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman. It's based on the Ellis novel. Is the guy's name? Yeah, yeah. Brett Easton Ellis. Brett Easton Ellis, and the novel's name was American Psycho. Thank you so much, because it's been in my mind. I never said I am. I am your book. font of pop culture. Yeah, I'm just kind of keep quizzing <laughs> you here. And what's my name? And where are my pants? I just you are uh, you are Patrick Plaid shirt. <laughs> Burnett, yes, yes, right. We call they call me Plaid shirt. Yeah, they, they call get, me Plaid shirt. Why do they call you Plaid shirt, Patrick? <laughs> I'm so fucking white. <laughs> So that there was that sense, and of course it is, and, and maybe we haven't organized this. At some point, friends, we're, we're going to put together a jam where we just randomly read passages from Stanley Crouch's liner notes, and I'm going to put some kind of rhythmic backing to it, and we're just going to make that a bonus segment. There is a sense of kind of just obnoxiousness about yeah. it, it's like some frat boy telling you how great his frat is. It just like no, if I wanted to hang out with frat boys, I wouldn't listen to jazz. You know, <laughs> there's other music for me out there. And the didactic streak in him is, for me, the least endurable aspect of him. And yeah. Yeah, it's coming out here. But but just from a purely musical point, let's let's forget that. Let's put plain brown rapper, no crouch liner notes. The music itself does seem a little desiccated, a little under glass, a little too cute for its own good. And it just doesn't seem to have a beating heart or a, a purpose, a drive to exist other than showing off and showing you what he thinks is, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, I shouldn't have shit on his side, man. I don't mean to Marcus Roberts and Robert Hur- Robert Hurst third place based on a lot of later recordings, and I do like him. It's just that they feel less this, adventuresome. In, they in, feel in less this project, right? They are risk. a little bit straight. Well, they're a little bit straightjacketed by the project. I mean, it, yeah, maybe it's the project and not them, but exactly. yeah, they're definitely they are not. No one is being encouraged to try new things. Now that said, I like this album better than Hot House Flowers. That was what I remember that came out a little earlier than this. Yeah, yeah. And it was another standard thing, and I just found really kind of, maybe it had strings on it. I don't intrinsically dislike strings projects, but as a kid at least, and I've not gone back to it for many years, I just found it kind of flaccid. I I think this is more interesting than that, but yeah, ultimately it's a little hard to explain why it needs to, to, to be on this earth. And boy, I was trying to listen to one of those 10 albums he released in 99 was a monk, mm. and I've still not been able to find my way into caring about that record. You know, he does like Standard Time Volume 17, yeah. Thelonious yeah, Monk. Yeah. And... He's got a bunch of projects. So, you know, there's yeah. the there's the Soul Gestures oh, project, yeah. I know. Yeah. And there's the um, the Levy Low Moan project. I think that's one of them. I think it's like three albums that were called. Well, and, we're, and there's we're, the standard time. There's we're up to right, yeah, so, six or seven. Right. I think, yeah. But yeah, the soul gestures in Southern Blue. I mean, think about that title for a minute. Yeah. That's so full of pretentious bullshit. You've already got to run to the bathroom mm-hmm. and get some kind of emodium in your system. <laughs> because what 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 the fuck? Joe Henderson's on one of those. It's one of the weakest recordings I've ever heard Joe on. There's one blues there that I swear to God, the bass player is just about ready to go comatose. It's like, you know, get 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 some sugar in this boy. It just drags. It's flaccid. It's just not that great. And, of course, it's amazingly pretentious, right? I mean, what the... F- just release a goddamn album. Don't tell me what series it's part of. It's going to stand or fall on its own merits, not that it's part of the soul gestures in Southern fucking blue. Just, good Lord. So none of these are that degree of egregious silliness but yeah the standard time series a little much I 
Okay. Let's turn now to probably the album I like the best this week, which is the uh, double live album, uh, Live at Blues Alley, a club in uh, Washington, D.C. And what I like about this recording is Winton doesn't do a lot of re- live recordings. And you'd think, I don't know what to make of this. You'd think that someone who had a contract with Columbia basically to put out anything that he farted onto record would fulfill a contract by producing a lot of live music. But in fact, and maybe this is to his credit, he produced album after released album after album after album after album. And there are only a handful. He is not well documented as a live musician until more recently with the Lincoln Center, Lincoln Jazz Center Orchestra. Maybe part of that is economic in that, frankly, live albums tend to be cheaper to produce. And of course, why wouldn't they do more then? You know, well, but but the whole point is he had infinite money at that time. Ah, In other words, he could do whatever he wanted. So he didn't have to put together a live performance that was an easier thing to fund because he could make a sixth head album or whatever he wanted to do next or record with strings or blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a huge Village Vanguard set he releases, seven discs. But yeah, you're right. It's It's not a discography with lots of live stuff. And so here is the first live recording of Winton after the first blush is over, after the first five or six, actually it's more than that, albums come out. But this is the first live release. It's a double album. It's a double CD. It's released in uh, 88. I think it might be recorded in 87. But it gives you a sense of what these guys sounded like live. And this is the basic set of guys he was working with before, right? So it's Marcus Roberts, uh, Robert Hurst, and Jeff Watts. So the same set of guys. And you get to hear him play a couple of numbers more than once. Clearly, a few things have now kind of entered the repertoire, right? This song, it's pronounced, I guess, no smoking, but it's written Nas Mo King, ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. Chambers of Tain has kind of entered the repertoire at this point. Autumn Leaves and Cherokee are a couple of standards he keeps coming back to. But here we have it. Here's, here's the guys playing live. And if I wanted to sell someone on Winton as an engaging personality and someone who you might want to hear more of, I would turn them onto this set because the playing is as always inspired. Uh, he's technically, he's amazing, but there's still the puckishness uh, from time to time. And in, in some of the little cutesy things they get up to on Juan e Mustad, but or, what? Oh, the, sorry. Just, there's a phrase in just friends that right. is really kind of comic in the middle of his solo. I went back and listened to half a dozen recordings of it. Charlie Parker's famous one with strings. And it, it is something that a lot of players just don't do, right? If they're playing a ballad, even playing it quickly, they don't kind of deflate the emotional tenor of it. But he, he tends to do that sometimes. Anyway, he's, sorry. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he's willing to do that. But I do feel like he's, he's more engaging here. He's less professor and more just, I'm going to entertain people in a club. And it's an entertaining set. And they play well. It's a, it's a, pretty rollicking time he he does have the the cutesy comic bits that come out that seem to be a part of his dna his musical dna but 
and you want to show him in his best light. If you want to show him, you know, if you want to show early Winton to someone and say, here's an engaging player who you might find interesting. This is where I would take them. I would let them listen to this and decide if they wanted to carry on with him because I find him more palatable here. I like him as a live player. I think he's a very good live player. And I think he's a little more engaging and even charismatic and less professorial and less dogmatic. And those are all good things. And I think there's a little less desiccation in the playing here. There's a little more risk when they play live. So it's the same quartet that we were talking about before that's desiccated on, I think was your term, on Standard Time Volume 1. Same quartet, but here they're much more adventuresome and engaged. Marcus Roberts has some very fine moments. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I fucking hate chambers of tain because it turns into a 15 minute drum solo i mean it just <laughs> drives me fucking nuts but i get why on a live date that might happen and it's you know it's a decent drum solo i'm, I'm sorry i have to listen to it constantly when i play this disc but i could see why that would be fun to listen to in a live date he's he's good they're they're all good on this date i like this date quite a bit i think this is winton at his most engaging and uh, pleasant maybe that's the right word i want yeah, absolutely on board with that. I I think Marcus Roberts gets off a couple epic solos yes. with a lot of cross rhythms and motivic development that that really striking. And I think I, I was on to that more this time than I was listening to it as a, as a young person. How good some of those solos are. Yep. And I read somewhere that he is kind of considered the most successful alum of Wenton's groups mm. independently. I mean, obviously, Brainford's had his own career, but in terms of these other musicians that have come through the ranks, he seems to be the kind of guy that brings people into his orbit, and they tend to stay there, but they don't tend to necessarily go off and do something new. He's more of a Sun Ra. He's less of a Blakey or a Miles. Right. finds talent, and then the talent kind of gets out of the nest and does its own creativity. It seems like he brings people to him in his orbit, and they kind of stay there. Yep. And they become Wentonized. But yeah, Roberts, a couple of these solos are just epic and they hold interest and they're not self-indulgent. And in some ways, they're maybe a little bit more adventuresome structurally than what Wenton's doing. But Wenton's playing is really fabulous. It's a little looser. He's somebody mm -hmm. who benefits from looseness. Again, yep. some players, you want to keep them in that studio under <laughs> close, close guard. Adult, adult supervision. Absolutely. At all they need it. And, and Wenton, in some ways, is better off stretching out a bit as like a Steve Coleman or whoever, where they're already kind of very uptight, focused, precise players and stretching out Greg Osby, whoever stretching out is good for them. It, it, they benefit. So yeah, this is, it's a couple hours and I think little of it is wasted. Most of it's very pleasant. Yeah. The drum solo, that's why God gave us a skip button, but it's, <laughs> you know, but it is, it is, it's, and, and there is a sense of a little passion and energy behind it. And that's always the question with him. Yep. It's not, can he play? I don't think anybody with ears would deny that he's a fantastic trumpet player. Though, again, I think if I had to listen to the tone of a given trumpet player for the rest of my life, probably it wouldn't be Wenton. But, you know, just as a technician, awe-inspiring. Awe but does he need to play? Is he reaching you? Is, is there a kind of a warm motor behind what he's doing? Or is it just more kind of an unspooling of this endless technique? And, yeah, this is a really good really good recording and I, I do recall it as one many years I guess at this point ago but many many years after I first listened to Wenton thinking you know I, I want to track that down I want to get a copy of that I maybe had a cassette or something of it or an LP that was lost I don't know but I thought I remember really liking that one in, in kind of an instinctive level and as I said earlier on the show his life set with Blakey which is obviously a much younger Wenton less developed and less idiosyncratic but 
that's some of my favorite pl- of his playing too. I, I don't know that it's as the conceptualist or the didact that he really reaches me. That's not his, it's as a blower. Yeah. And this is a really good set of things. That said, there are hints of the kinds of things that give people issue with him. If you want someone who is deadly serious, who's committed to the emotion, Wynn's probably not your guy. Yeah. Just, he finally can't, with, with an eighth of his equipment, Miles puts together some performances that just are, are breathtaking. Or for, for that matter, Chet Baker, who is yeah. in certain ways a very cold player, but also one that somehow can hypnotize you. I don't know that Wynn quite has ever had that gift of that sustained, you know, it, it's a little bit like in a very different form, the thing that bothers me about Phil Woods, where you just feel like he just can't help himself. He's got these little twitches. He's going to growl in the middle of a ballad. The technique kind of bubbles out beyond his control, and he can't stay on emotional point very successfully. And and Winton's very different personality, very different figure in the music, but finally I, he's got some of that. And it's it's important because this is the only set that I'm aware of. There might be one other that he's recorded in this quartet setting that's live. The live at Village Vanguard set, uh, it's a septet. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got, as far as I can tell, his dis- his discography shows 13, 13 out of a discography that is literally hundreds of albums long. And that includes things he's played on, not just that, that he's recorded, right? He's got 13 live albums. That's not very many. And out of those 13, you know, a couple of these are the uh, duet album with Willie Nelson. And the, there's two duet albums with Willie Nelson, God help us. There's a duet album with Eric Clapton. Oh, God. I know. What the fuck? So, Shoot me now. <laughs> exactly. Well, so he this do is like an accordion player, too, I think. I Richard think Galliano. That, he did. Yeah. Is that um, live? Uh, yeah, I that's like a live is. date. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's the quartet with Galliano, right? So if you want to hear him just live in a, a stripped down setting, this is, I think, just about the only damn thing you, you can find that has him in that in that setting. Yeah, maybe that is. I was thinking, is there a third part of his career after he goes further back in time to the large ensemble stuff? And maybe it's coexists with the second phase, but it's kind of the yo-yo ma slut thing. Yes. I'm a great player. I'll play with anybody. Stick me together with Willie Nelson or stick me together with whoever. Willie Nelson is the same way. I mean, it, oh, well, absolutely. Nelson, I yeah. mean, he's he's a whore. He'll play with anybody. He's got talent, but he'll play with anybody, you know. Speaking there must be a Willie Nelson Yo-Yo Ma album out there. I somewhere. bet there is. Well, anyway. So, there we go. That's So that's my pick of the four that we talked about this week. That's the one to go for if you've never heard him and you want to like him. Yeah, and for the early stuff, I think Studio, I, I would probably plump for J-Mood or for Black Codes. But yep. yeah, of the recordings, yeah, I think I probably, this may, it's probably right now, certainly, and it probably will remain my favorite. Yeah, that's what he needs, and that's where he thrives. And again, Roberts is really, there's some fantastic solos there. It's, it, yes. it's very intense, persistent energy about it. And that's one thing he does bring, even to some of the studio stuff, there is a kind of youthfulness and energy to a lot of the playing. They are discovering this stuff and playing it. It's it's new to them. It's just not necessarily new overall. And yeah. this is kind of his most uncomplicated phase. We're coming up on when he starts writing for larger ensembles and also moving backwards from the second great quintet really to some New Orleans models. But I feel like Ellington is kind of a lodestar after this, isn't he, at some level? Yeah, I think that's fair. Before we move on, I wanted to mention, I just wanted to mention to you what he says here in in his blog about this date. Ah, okay. 
um, which sure. is kind of fascinating. I won't read all of it. I'll just read the last bit. He says he can remember playing clubs from Al Hertz to Chateau Rosa to Lou and Charlie, blah, blah, blah. In the 80s, I loved playing Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. I always remembered any club that had the courage to hire me when I first started. And he says he's very happy to be playing there with these guys. So he talks about non-smoking. And he says, and this is fascinating to me. He says, the song has three sections that can be activated at any time by cues. And that is, you know, cues within the band. Like they can, oh, okay, sure. on different nights, they can set off these different sections. So the first is an open F mode in fast 4-4 swing, cued by the principal ascending line, on which we just build energy by strutting themes and building up interlocking counter rhythms. The second mode is an open mode on an altered C-ish chord in a slower time of the rhythm section's choice, cued by a descending chromatic theme. And the third is a progression of descending two-bar harmonies to a turnaround a cup to a couple of five-bar phrases. Even though it was written in 1982, we still play this because it is very open and free. I remember I had just turned 25 when we made these recordings. Think about that. Yeah. And because the chief criticism of my playing was that it was too technical, I set out to play even more technically and accurate and fiery and young. I was playing such long solos during that time, the rhythm section could have sued me. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but, you know, I listening to these solos, I do not feel like you can accuse him of getting stuck in ruts, in yeah. running out of ideas, in just running technical exercises. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of yes. content to him. There's a lot of invention. Again, it may not touch you. It may not reach you emotionally, though yeah. I think it's it, it, it does a better job of that here than most. But it's certainly, he does not flag for invention. It's not rote pattern running. It, it is not technique that doesn't have any content. Right. It's it, it is good stuff. He's a good soloist. And again, as I said, I think that maybe not him playing them, but if somebody had to play me etudes based on either his solos in that second great quintet copy mode or Miles's, I, I prefer his. You know, they are just more interesting, I think, often than Miles's solos of that particular period were. They yeah. certainly don't reach the heights of Miles's best stuff, but. So, yeah, that's it's a great recording, and absolutely, that's the one I, I, I plump for first for a new listener. Say, listen to Live at Blues Alley. His bona fides as a jazz band, period, kind of really, they get established, I think, beyond doubt. But right. if his mannerisms annoy you, guess what? They get a lot worse. Like, they do get worse. <laughs> they, they come out a lot more later. But and, yeah, this um, is him at his most engaging, and this is him at his most likable, if you ask me. I, I mean, I really, really enjoy this state a lot. I think it's a great... Great and I haven't gone back. I have to go back to the Vanguard set. After a while, I got much more selective with the stuff I got from him. And then I just, yeah. and that was what I really got to see. I'm going to check in. I mean, they're kind of every now and then I'll check in. I got that session with the accordion player. I think I've listened to it twice. And that was mm. a check in. Well, what's he up to now? Right. It's been 10 years or it's been five years. Right. I'm just going to check it. in. Not the beginning of the 80s when it was really my dad, not myself, but right. where every release you're going to get and listen to and you may or may not like so much. Well, the Village Vanguard, that's a septet. And right. what I remember thinking most amazing about that was when they play the Dixieland stuff, it's very technical. And I had never thought that that's what I, that was my big takeaway from that date. I had heard plenty of Dixieland and I'd never thought of just how technical and challenging in some ways Dixieland is with portamento trombone or the is that the right word what the fuck did i just say portamento that's not right i think uh, you meant pimento they're really delicious with no, I, I don't know you know where the, know the, you, yeah, the trombone yeah. carries over a line and right, uh, yeah. the interlocking lines between say uh, a clarinet and uh, a trumpet and just how precise and intricate 
and put together like an amazing little Swiss watch Dixieland jazz is. And I just never appreciated that, you know, even listening to all those Armstrong recordings. And then when you hear the uh, Marsalis Septet play it on those live Village Vanguard dates, and they don't play merely Dixieland, but they play several Dixieland songs there, you're sort of struck with, my God, that is some really technical shit. And I'm not sure that's what you want to take away when you listen to Dixieland. You want to listen to it and go, that's very technically accomplished. You know? Yeah. He, he it's a weird thing. And we'll go back. I, I do think it'll be a while, but yes, I'm sure we'll come enough. back and, and maybe look at mid-period stuff, maybe look at Biggie style, some of his. I, I've never listened to Blood on the Fields. I suppose I should someday. And, and my it's, guess is, it's, it's worthwhile. It's you know, not. Right. And, and that's Cassandra Wilson, for God's sure, sake. Sure, sure. And, and right, you know, listen to a couple of his, you know, city movement or whatever or a couple of his and, and he actually plays a couple of his extended pieces on that that live date and so uh, one reason i was interested in it was to hear a couple of them and again my sense being rightly or wrongly that they may be a little more palatable live than they would be from the studio a little bit less uh compressed um yeah. a little less uh anal but yeah he puts together and of course we have touched on his music before we talk for instance about the lincoln center jazz orchestra's uh take on a love supreme yeah that he led, and I feel like at least one other recording that he was involved with, I can't recall it now. So it's, and we talk about him all the time, but yeah, this is the first one we really focused on. I'm sure we'll come back. If this ditty is not so pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the top, you're the Coliseum, you're the top. I want to ask you real quickly, he, the thing about Wenton is he had many roles. So if you're going to rate them importance, I'm going to give you five roles mm. from best at it to worst at it. So I'm going to say as an Jeez. instrumentalist, uh-huh. as a composer, as a band leader slash talent spotter, as a ideologue slash educator, and finally as a fashion icon, how do you rate <laughs> Well, instrumentalist, he's a five. That's number one. I I, am I putting these in order, these five things? Uh, well, yeah, whatever. I don't know. This is, it's a discussion Well, point. instrumentalist is at the very top. Okay. I mean, that's that's, that's his, his biggest contribution, yeah. Biggest contribution. I think, like him or not, I think you have to take him as an ideologue as his second most important contribution. He's generated a huge amount of print and reaction around jazz just by virtue of taking the positions he's taken. And you and I both kind of soundly reject those positions, but you can't ignore them. It's an important strain within modern jazz to to have that kind of traditionalist view of, of where the music has come from and what it means and where it's going. And the fact that he managed to get that enshrined in a fucking Burns documentary really does. Oh, kind of, don't even bring that up. Yeah, I know. It really does kind of. Cement. It's scary. It's scary. I know. What it is. I know. That's where that a lot of and people... And we're referring to, what was it it's called? Just Jazz, the Ken Burns documentary that... Yeah, yeah it's it's called Jazz. <laughs> it's a little bit like if Ken Burns had done Germany and just never mentioned the Third Reich. Yeah. It's so weirdly twisted that... Anyway, it's a very... Don't yeah, start especially the that. last episodes. So oh. I think that's his second most important contribution after being an instrumentalist. I mean, I just think that's terribly important like it or not that's that's hugely important now what were my other choices talent spotter fashionista what was the third thing so um oh yeah, group uh, band leader talent spotter composer and fashionista those, those oh, are the three um 
I'm going to put talent spotter right down there at the bottom. I just don't think that's that important. I don't, I don't think you don't think of him as having produced a kind of, and maybe I'm just not up to speed. Maybe the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra has churned out alum after alum, but I'm not aware of them. I'm aware of like, well, like Ted Nash, I think. Wasn't Ted Nash maybe in the band? But don't they stay? I mean, you know, Wessel Warm Daddy Anderson lives. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, right. I mean, Wessel, fine player, but does anyone want to run out and buy a bunch of Wessel Warm Daddy Anderson? Who? Oh, come on. Are there, are, are there such things? <laughs> yeah, and if there were, would you care? I mean, not right. that he's, it's weird because he's a fine player. You enjoy him, but it is... As, right. as as a planetoid in the orbit of the Winton, not right. as a voice, it's going to oh, you know. I'm going to I'm going to say okay. his talent spotting ability is probably his least important characteristic, and then I'm going to go with we'll say fashionista too. The man wears a nice suit, but okay. So composer we'll above those two things. No, that's uh, hard to say. Yeah. I'm gonna, <laughs> all right, I'm going to put composer at two, and I'm going to put fashionista at uh, three. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's switch that around. It is a really nice watch. I got to say, you know, that watch is a fucking nice. Watch. I would love to have his clothes. I'd love to have his clothes budget. I mean, he is impeccable. I mean, the man has. I would. I would sell hates. them and, and buy music I like. Probably not by him, but I. Yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. The budget. He, yes. he looks great. He always looks great. He you looks can't fine. About that. You don't have to. Or, you don't have to like it, but you can never say he doesn't look good. So. Yeah, yeah. Or he, he, well, he looks rich. I, I think yeah. that's what we're trying to say. I, I don't know that that's identical to good. I mean, he looks he looks like he's got a lot of money that he's wearing. Hey, I you know what? I would like to have five hundred dollars. I guess they're no more than five hundred dollars, aren't they? <laughs> I would like to have two thousand dollar Italian suits. That would there be okay about me. Yeah, I would. If I had those, I would. I would. I'd be happy to wear them. I think. If you're going to go the cheap route, sure, only two thousand, fine, fine. Yeah, that's the story of Young Winton, 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 Winton. We should explain that when Patrick does Winton, 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 that's his take on the old Brady Bunch episode where Jan complains about Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> I guess, yeah. That's where I that just, comes from. You didn't know that? I thought you. I just, that. I just feel like that when you're talking about Wenton, you have to say his name at least five times, but don't do it in front of a mirror because he'll disappear and he'll start telling you <laughs> that your music collection is like way off. It's like, no, 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 you got to get rid of that and get rid of that. No soft sell for you, young man. Damn. And I, I think we did a pretty good job of focusing mostly on the music, and I really think ultimately now that's where you got to look. He's no longer quite the the dominant force he was. Thank God. And things have moved on, maybe not for the better, maybe not for the worse, but you're left with the recordings. And I wonder if, I I don't know, I don't know what their status is. I don't know how people feel about it, whether he's been kind of written off as an embarrassment because he was so corporate and so shoved down people's throats and he needs to be reassessed in musical terms or whether we've already reached that point or whether it's just, I don't know. At some level, I wonder if just his stuff is undervalued because it was so prolific. I mean, it was just everywhere. There's so many of them. He may be a figure who we're going to have to get 20 or 30 years past his passing, which you and I probably won't do since he'll probably outlive us. But yeah, yeah, a reassessment of him will be called for at some point down the line, I think. But it's going to take there'll have to be some perspective. We'll have to get past him. But at least now he is he's. Like most people, and certainly most jazz musicians, he's no longer got a corporate monolith at his back. He's right. kind of out there independently, as most jazz musicians and many musician musicians are. So he no longer has that kind of, I don't know, voice of moneyed authority to kind of smack people with. 
And in some ways, that's probably all for the good to think about him as an artist. He's no longer quite the monolith he was back in the 80s when you just felt like, like him or loathe him, you couldn't escape him if you were into jazz. And to some degree, I mean, I think there was some awareness of him in popular culture. There was a period there where it was not only hip to be square, as Huey Lewis deathlessly put it, but, but to have a Wynton Marcellus album or two. Just once I turned my back and you were gone From now on all my friends are gonna be strangers I'm all through ever trusting anyone The only thing I can count on now is my fingers I was a fool believing in you and now you are gone Well, Wild, do you have any pop stuff that you like to talk about? Well, I mentioned him earlier. For you, this won't matter. But uh, Merle Haggard died a few days ago. Just stay close to the dingus. Merle Haggard died. There we go. uh, Two days ago on his, uh, I believe, on his 79th birthday. Yeah, that's correct. So he is not properly rated, or perhaps he is properly rated. I don't know. Probably not properly rated by people who listen to jazz. He is a phenomenally important vocalist and writer and performer and a very complicated and interesting guy who did a lot more than that fucking Oki from Muskogee song that made him famous in 1969. That that song kind of put him on the map and put him on AM radio forever as a kind of flag-waving redneck patriot, which he actually wasn't. But yeah, he uh, recorded uh, a bunch of albums in the mid to late 60s that are just incredible and sort of crucial albums for country country swing and and uh, he's uh, i'm a huge fan of his and and so i've been spending the last few days re-listening to some of that stuff and just marveling again at what an amazing voice he has what a phenomenally gifted singer he was uh, so yeah he's a he's an important uh, important figure for me he he did most of his best music in his first 10 years um, okay and then did a lot of other things, traded on on his hits as so many people do. But he kept he kept writing. He never stopped writing. So his later discography gets spotty, as all older country musicians' discographies do. But he was continuing to write vinyl music right into the year 2000, the last uh, couple albums he did. He kind of got a new label, and then he started self-publishing. And he was still churning out worthwhile music, not just trading on his old hits. So... It's very sad that, that, that he passed. I'm a big fan of his. And so, I, like I said, I've been spending the last few days re-listening to his stuff and marveling at, at, at his voice and just the way he could put across a lyric. He was a, a great, great singer. Very sad about, about him dying. That's what I've been listening to. I mean, I've been listening to some other pop stuff, but that's the stuff that I've cared the most about that I've been listening to. And if you want to listen to anything by him, I highly recommend you just start with the first album. His backup band were called The Strangers, <laughs> and his his first album was called From Now On, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. And that's uh, also it's often just known as Strangers, his first album. And it is a great debut album. That's a great song. From Now On, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. <laughs> it's a great song. And uh, yeah, he's just, he's a great singer of heartbreak. Yeah, he's hes a wonderful performer. I'm sorry he's gone. That's all I got to say about that. I could talk about the Gomez I've been listening to, but that's not that interesting compared to uh, Merle going away. So 
Yeah, yeah. yeah that's poor Gomez. They, they, they saddled with a label dad rock. Was it fair? No one knows. Yeah, I, I, I read his obituary. He's not somebody to listen to. So if, if I listen to his music, it'll be for a first time. But obviously, he was regarded as an important artist. This is not a field I've explored much. And I don't, it's not that I hate all country. I try to follow Duke Ellington's dictum. There's good music and bad music. There's some right. that's a lot easier for me temperamentally to kind of get to. I hope I can admire good stuff in fields where I just don't often find myself exploring or find myself vibrating to. But I think the problem with country is it means so many different things. And there's certain sections of it that are pretty unendurable. But oh, yeah, no, he's there's not, a lot of bad pop and a lot of bad jazz, and a lot of bad classical. Right. It, it's just. Yeah. yeah, he's not part of that contrapolitan right. 80s Garth Brooks bullshit. He's very authentic. And he was one of the last country singers who actually did time in prison he actually you know a lot of these guys write songs about prison but he his career started after he got out of prison he spent time in san quentin so he he, he comes by all of that authentically sounds like a jazz musician to me yeah a little bit a lot of know, them he, did yeah uh, yeah he, well, he spent time in prison for robbery it's uh, a country music they play in arby's that i can't stand most of that is real shit yeah, yeah um, and it's it's his it's, it's his vocal he's a good writer actually he's quite a good writer but he's he's got an amazing voice and if you hear him when he's old he's only a shadow of himself although he still has moments of brilliance but as a younger man, he's he's got a whole bunch of tricks up his sleeve as a vocalist. He is wonderful to listen to, so I'm a, I'm a big fan. Well, someday I'll have to spend something. I'll have to. Well, let me oh. know. I can. I am. I'm a. I'm damn near a completist for all the import uh, okay. stuff. So I can hook you up. Whereas I'm a nothing at all list, but that's okay. Well, yeah. you know, back in the day when they did these albums, his first album it has 12 songs. It's 27 minutes long. Oh sure, yeah, right. That is awesome. Man, yeah, there you awesome. go. You know? Say your piece, get off the stage, yeah. Exactly, drop mic, walk away. It's awesome. I, the length I, of one went Marcella solo. Yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> Which right. is, what have you been listening uh, to? One thing I've done is follow up a little bit on the JJ and K tip. Got some real cheap reissue of their earlier albums, and I'd say that if you go back to, say, the release on Bethlehem, it has a little more jazz content. Okay. And then when I was buying some used records in Kalamazoo, uh, as I went college shopping with my son, I came up with a release of theirs on CTI called Betwixt and Between. And at that point in the 70s there, on Cree Taylor's label, the jazz content is pretty much gone. There's, <laughs> they do Wichita Line Man with the most annoying guitar sound I've ever heard in my life. Uh, Joe Beck is on that album. He's not my favorite, period. But they intersperse these pop covers where if there's any soloing at all, it's the very last 15 to 30 seconds hmm. of the outro wow. with little snippets of Bach and classical sure. music. So it's really odd. It's like it's Charlie's Angels music, you know, kind of thunka, 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 you know, trombones. Oh, no. And then a little Bach. And then it's just Wichita line man. And then just a little more Bach. So very bizarre project, but the end of their run, very commercialized. It's, and it, the playing's an amazing level. I think Herbie Hancock is like the piano player on the gig. So it's not like these are idiots playing the music, but it, it's pretty pandering. And there are strings, God help us, there are strings. So not my favorite of the CTI joints by a long shot. Well, so that's a, what, a lot to apologize for. He does. <laughs> and, and of course, some of the A&M, you know, as I've talked about before summertime by paul desmond is, is probably one of my favorite recordings it's commercial as hell but herbie hancock and cork some of his best solos etc this is not that this is not good elevator music this is just music where you're ready to get to that fourth floor as soon as you can but it, it's still they're pleasant to listen to but the, the earlier stuff yeah there is 
a couple of those performances run five minutes and you feel like, my God, there's some jazz in there. So it, it sounds to me like over time that they increasingly focused on the cute arrangements and they got a little bit more commercial as they went. Anyway, I also got Billy Idol's greatest hits. Huh. And, and Mike, if Billy Idol predeceases us, I promise not to tell you what an important singer he was because he wasn't. <laughs> but it's fun. He it, is if, a lot of fun. If you're a certain age, I just really need a copy of White Wedding because I, that and also he was the he was he was the MTV generation, right? Back oh, when absolutely. MTV did videos and those videos were essential. He basically built a career on a sneer. His entire career is built on a sneer. Think about it. Right. And, and a decent Jim Morrison <laughs> imitation. And, you know, his lip was permanently curled. Oh, my God. Every video, he looks the same. But but if you listen, it's funny because he came out of punk. He was apparently yes, in a punk band. Yeah, and that's right. half the stuff, it, it's it's fun, but it is pretty close to M.O.R. Yes. A lot of his songs, Eyes Without a Face, which I, I finally saw that movie. It's a fun movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it's sort of like goth ballad or something. But yeah, there's a couple fun songs there. Apparently, Don't You Forget About Me was originally written for Billy Idol, oh, and he has weird. a cover of it, which sounds a lot like the original. I'm sure we know. Uh, yeah, it, it's, and he does a couple pop covers. It's a weird career. It really is. And the great thing is the liners there, and I got this used from Amazon for like a buck. He's still a vital artist. He's still growing. It's like, no, he's not. No, oh, come he's for not. fuck's sake, what are you talking about? No, he's not. But as that's long okay. as he can sneer, he'll right, have a he's career. Right, he's fine. But, you know, he was yeah, a intelligent guy with white hair, and he could sneer, and he made half a dozen really fine radio songs. But anyway, it's a guilty pleasure. I, I listened all the way through it because I was like doing some kind of accounting stuff at work, but you really don't need to listen past the first six or seven songs if you don't want to, but, you know, it's it's fine. And that concludes episode 90 of the Jazz Bastard Podcast. Glad we finally got that off our chests. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbastard.com or from iTunes. As a public service announcement, just a reminder that June 17th is dressed as Winston Marsalis Day. So everybody, men, women, children, get your Italian silk suits, wingtip shoes, wire rim glasses, and tasteful bow ties. Remember, dressing as Jason, Branford, or Del Fio is not acceptable. Tune in next time as we discuss work by Kamasi Washington, Kendrick Lamar, James Brown, and Eddie Gale. Until then, take care.